You're listening to a sermon from New Harvest Church in Salem, Oregon. We believe that you were created for connection to Christ and a community of his followers. This sermon is an extension of our desire to become more like Christ by engaging God's word within our weekly gatherings. If you are in the area, we'd love for you to join us on a Sunday. You can learn more about New Harvest and our ministries at newharvestch.org. Pastor Steve is going to come up and lead us in a time of prayer. Oh, about nine days ago, my wife and I moved into our new home. And after four months of living between different family members' homes, it was a good thing to finally get into our own place. Our kids were great. A few days after we moved in, we had the pleasure for our anniversary. We went to a concert up at the Moda Center. Jackson Brown and James Taylor. And if you know who they are, you tell, you're tell you saying how old you are. There's maybe 9,000 people there. And, and as some of those songs were sung, I have to admit, it made me sad. Because they're 48 years old, some of those songs. And it, it just reminded me that time is passing and that I'm, I'm not 18 anymore. And I'm a sentimental guy, and so it was a moment of pause. It brought a little tear to my eye, actually. And then I looked around, and we were singing songs that we knew from all of us old people. And I felt like the Lord said, this is nothing. You're getting closer, Steve, to the day. We'll have a concert that will end all concerts. There's going to be encore after encore after encore where we can celebrate. And it won't be in a dark auditorium. It'll be well lit. It just made me remember that he said, I'm going to prepare a place for you. And it's taken more than four months. But we have collected ourselves here today because we believe that someday will be the beginning of a day that will never end and we will sing with every instrument known to man celebrating our Savior. Father, we we really, you've said no eye has seen, no ear has heard. We just have no way to comprehend what is waiting for us. We're quite aware of the pain and disappointments and anxieties and worries and fears and the whole list of what goes on here. We have a real good grasp of that. But I'm, I know you told us to, to set our minds on things above. Set our minds on things above in heavenly places. So we'll admit there's a tension there, Lord, that's challenging for us, but we want to get better at it. And just being here this morning is another way of us, I think, saying we'd like to become better at focusing, having our hearts riveted to, set on who you are. Would you even move amongst 
our thinking. We ask that even in these moments, in a few minutes here where the word will be open to us, we ask you to penetrate our thinking and remind us of what you have waiting for us. In the name of Jesus, amen. Well, good morning, everyone. Great to see all of you. Got to greet several of you as you came in. But if I didn't get to greet you, my name's Tyler. I'm one of the pastors here at the church. Excited to welcome you to New Harvest. Before we jump into our text this morning, a couple brief announcements. The first is all throughout the month of October, different uh, duos of our elder board have been meeting with people in the coffee shop. And that'll be happening today as well. But this is the last one. And so if you'd like to talk to them about our leadership transition or about really anything else in the church, they would love to talk to you. And so you can just head down to the coffee shop after we're done in here later this morning, and Ron Moore and Ben Milner would be happy uh, to talk to you. And they've set aside some time to do that throughout this month, and I know a lot of people have mentioned that that they really appreciate that. Uh, The second thing is, big event happening this afternoon. And I have to say, like, I think it's... Uh, especially during COVID, it has been very difficult to do outreach sort of events. It's easy to do it in the summer, but once October hits through about April, it gets a lot more difficult. So it's really cool to be able to host what we're, we're calling Trunk or Treat. A lot of people are doing it. Four to six this afternoon, right out here outside in the parking lot. Many of you have signed up to bring your trunk which is awesome. I will be there with my trunk as well. If you'd like to be involved and you're like, I'm, I just found out about this, but I want to be involved, there's still room for a few more people. So come talk to me, talk to Karen, or write your name on the clipboard in the lobby and let us know you'd like to be a part of it. Four to six this afternoon, bring your kids, grandkids. It'll be a fun time. Trunk or treat, uh, our, our big outreach for the fall. Uh, One of the the great appeals of Halloween is the opportunity to be someone or something that you are not. And I think kids especially appreciate this, partly because kids do that like naturally all the time. Like kids are always kind of play acting, acting like they are somebody else, whether it's a Disney character or a superhero or some athlete that's famous. They like to imagine themselves doing those things. And I think that imagination kind of like dwindles as we get older. But now and then I see like you're going to see tonight at the trunk or treat. There's some older adults in this room that really get into Halloween that like to dress up in some some special and unique ways. Uh, Now, some of you, though, I recognize probably haven't figured out a costume. And maybe you're like, I don't know, I'm going to have to go to the store this afternoon, go buy something, I don't know what I'm going to be. Well, I did some research for you, something simple and memorable, costume ideas. So here you go, right behind me. First up is Miss Universe. All of you ladies are probably like, this is pretty cool. And this is actually very easy, just a simple dress and put some planets on it with a little sash across there, Miss Universe. Okay, next one. It's raining men. Hallelujah. All you need is an umbrella, some string, and some pictures of men. There you go. Uh, This is a family, cops and robbers. Really pretty simple again. Like you could pull it off with your family. Uh, The next one up is Uncle Sam, Lady Liberty, and a bald eagle. Right there in the middle. Pretty creative. 
Uh, next one is really simple. Maybe the simplest one of them all. Copycat. Just make a bunch of copy pictures of a cat and stick them on your shirt. Copycat. Maybe that one's kind of lame. I don't know. Well, this one, this one's my favorite. This last one is my favorite. And just genius. Ice, ice baby. For all you 80s and 90s kids that are into vanilla ice, ice, ice baby. I hope that somebody comes up with their kid dressed up as ice, ice baby tonight. I will give you like 10 pieces of candy out of my trunk if you come as ice, ice baby. So like I said, I think part of the appeal of Halloween is to be someone or something that you are not. And I think we, we can imagine this on a, obviously a fun and a creative level. But if you look underneath the surface, I think there's also something else at work with Halloween and kind of its growing appeal within our society. That today's a really big day. Some people consider this a holiday. And it's really just kind of an opportunity to have fun. I think there's something else at work that we're drawn to be someone or something else because sometimes we don't really like who we are. We don't really like who we are. And so the ability to be someone or something else for a day or for a few hours sounds kind of fun and is kind of appealing. One of the things that I've always struggled with myself is I'm a pretty confident, self-assured person. And so on the positive end of things, like I kind of know where I want to go and what I want to do and how I pursue things. But at times that can come across to other people like I'm arrogant the joke with my father-in-law when he first met me is he told my wife, like, oh, yeah, Tyler's really great, but he seems kind of cocky. And that's kind of stuck with me for my whole marriage and my wife now almost 15 years. He always, he'll probably send me a text this afternoon and say, hey, great sermon. Don't let it go to your head, though. It's kind of just this ongoing joke. And so on the one hand, like a self-assured person can come across as arrogant. But on the other hand, sometimes, like, I don't feel very self-assured, but it's just kind of naturally how I come across. And so I can kind of be disconnected from reality. Like, I, I look like I have it all together, but in reality, I don't at all. And our culture tends to value prideful, self-assured, overconfident people. And so I can kind of live into that. And so throughout my whole, especially adult life, I've been kind of perplexed or drawn to humility how to achieve it, how to find it, how to pursue it. It's not something that I think has come as natural for me. It comes much more natural for me to just charge forward. But it seems like humility is more like laying back, or is it? What is humility? How do you pursue it? And I think the book of Daniel has kind of presented that question to us over and over through the character of King Nebuchadnezzar, who's been a part of the story every step of the way as we've gone through Daniel. You remember in Daniel 2, Nebuchadnezzar had a dream. Daniel interpreted for him, which basically said that you're going to be wiped out and your kingdom's going to come to an end, but there is an eternal kingdom that will reign forever. And so he has his first opportunity to humble himself. And he doesn't because he builds his own statue in Daniel 3 and he invites everybody to worship the statue that's representative of him. And Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego don't. They say, we won't do that. Even if you kill us, we're not going to do that. And so he throws them into a furnace and says, I'm going to kill you. But God protects them. And so we get the sense that at the end of Daniel 3, he's praising God and like, oh, this guy finally gets it. He's no longer prideful. He's acknowledged the Lord. He's stepping into a, a humbler way of living. And then we get to Daniel 4. And you might remember last week that there was another dream. 
that Nebuchadnezzar had that Daniel interpreted for him. And this dream is, uh, he's a tree. And he's this expansive tree that's providing fruit and shelter to everybody throughout the whole earth. It's visible everywhere, all throughout the earth. But this tree is going to be cut down, struck down, and will ultimately spend time in captivity of some sort of like beast animal that it becomes for seven years. And the end of the dream, Daniel says, now that's what it means, but here's what you're supposed to do, King Nebuchadnezzar. You're supposed to repent. You're supposed to humble yourself and to turn to the Lord. And so we think, finally, third time's the charm, right? He's, he's kind of turned away from God, and now here, the end of Daniel 4, we're going to get a really great, compelling testimony of repentance and turning to the Lord. Well, kind of, kind of. So, Daniel 4, verse 28, is where we're jumping in today. If you have your Bible, you can turn there. The words will be on the screen as well as we finish chapter 4 of the book of Daniel. And so Daniel has invited him to repent. And then in verse 28, the story continues and he says, All this happened to King Nebuchadnezzar. Now I want to pause real quick right there because you might remember last week we talked about how Daniel 4 is written by King Nebuchadnezzar. And so the whole thing is in first-person story told from the perspective of King Nebuchadnezzar until verse 28. Verse 28 is written in third person. All of this happened to King Nebuchadnezzar. Now Daniel's writing again. Now why is that? Well, as you're about to see, the king basically loses his mind. He loses his sanity. And so he has an inability to tell of what happened to him in these next few verses. Daniel has to tell the story for him. Verse 29, 12 months later, so 12 months after the dream, 12 months after Daniel invited him to repent, as the king was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon, he said, Is not this the great Babylon I have built as the royal residence by my mighty power and for the glory of my majesty? Even as the words were on his lips, a voice came from heaven. This is what is decreed for you, King Nebuchadnezzar. Your royal authority has been taken from you. You will be driven away from people and will live with the wild animals. You will eat grass like the ox. Seven times will pass by for you until you acknowledge that the Most High is sovereign over all the kingdoms on earth and gives them, gives them to anyone he wishes. Immediately, what had been said about Nebuchadnezzar was fulfilled. He was driven away from people and ate grass like the ox. His body was drenched with the dew of heaven until his hair grew like the feathers of an eagle and his nails like the claws of a bird. At that time, I, now shifting back to first person, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes toward heaven and my sanity was restored. So now again, he can tell the story of his testimony. Then I praised the Most High. I honored and glorified him who lives forever. His dominion is an eternal dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the peoples of the earth are regarded as nothing. He does as he pleases with the powers of heaven and the peoples of the earth. No one can hold back his hand or say to him, what have you done? At the same time that my sanity was restored, my honor and splendor were returned to me for the glory of my kingdom. My advisors and nobles sought me out and I was restored to my throne and became even greater than before. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and exalt and glorify the king of heaven because everything he does is right and all his ways are just and those who walk in pride he is able to humble. 
This is God's word for us today. And as you'll look into Daniel 5 next week, this is the end of the story for Nebuchadnezzar. This is, in Daniel's book, the end of his life. This is the last thing that we read about him in the book of Daniel. And so following Daniel's interpretation of the dream that we looked at last week, the opening part of Daniel 4, one year passes. God gave Nebuchadnezzar 12 months to repent. And if we had any kind of hope that King Nebuchadnezzar was going to turn from his self-centered, self-focused ways to honor and glorify God and to submit to him, those hopes were dashed right at the beginning of verse 30 when he's standing out on the roof of the palace that he has built and he's looking over all of the city of Babylon and he starts to brag about all that he has accomplished. And so we've talked a lot about throughout this series on Daniel, Nebuchadnezzar being the most powerful man in the world who's accomplished many amazing things, but we haven't talked about some of the specifics related to his achievements. What is it that he did that was so great? Why is history, you can read history books about King Nebuchadnezzar today that talk about his amazing achievements. Well, what are some of those? Why is it he's looking over the city of Babylon and giving himself credit? What's so great? Well, I wanted to highlight two great achievements of King Nebuchadnezzar. The first is the city of Babylon. The city of Babylon is a great achievement, in part because it's enormous. It's 15 miles each side, a square of 15 miles. And it has wide streets and public buildings and palaces. And there's a million people that live inside the city. And then around the city is a huge moat of water. And next to that is an enormous wall, 40 feet wide and 40 feet tall. What were the moat and the wall for? Well, to protect the city. So if somebody wanted to come in and try and conquer and invade the city, it was essentially impossible. Could you imagine trying to get over a 40-foot-tall wall that's also 40 feet wide without being killed? Seems impossible, right? So an amazing achievement to fortify the city on the outside. One historian wrote that you could ride a chariot on top of these walls, these exterior walls, four horses wide, and be able to turn it around all on the top of this wall. Just enormous. Well, inside the city is just as amazing as well. The, the Euphrates River ran right through the middle of town, and a 400-foot-long bridge was built to bridge the east and the west sides of the city. 400 feet long bridge. That would be a marvel even in 2021. And he did this many thousands of years ago. And then the, the king had separate palaces that he built. And uh, we don't know the size of all of them, but the royal palace is believed to be 600,000 square feet. Now, some of you, if you were to say like, oh, I have a 6,000 square foot house, we'd be like, whoa. That is huge, right? Well, this guy is not 6,000, not 60,000, 600,000 square feet royal palace. That is amazing, just incredible. So that's the first great achievement, the city of Babylon. The second is more specific, right next to the city of Babylon, what is known as the Hanging Gardens, one of the seven ancient wonders of the world. And the Hanging Gardens were essentially a 400-foot-tall artificial man-made mountain. And on the mountain were all sorts of plants and palm trees and trees. 
And they were fed water from the Euphrates River that flowed through Babylon. They came up with some sort of plumbing system to allow for that water to make it all the way to the top of this 400-foot-tall mountain that then filtered down to provide water for all of these plants. And this is amazing in part because Babylon, ancient Babylon, is in modern-day Iraq about 50 miles away from Baghdad. So it's in the middle of an insanely hot desert, and here you have this mountain full of greens and trees and plants and all sorts that are all watered through this system that they created. Now, why did he do this? Why did he make this mountain? Well, his wife is from Media, which is basically modern northern Iraq, very mountainous territory. And so he wanted to build this mountain so his wife could feel like she wasn't as far from home. Amazing achievement. And so I think the king is standing on the royal palace roof looking out over all that he has made. The city of Babylon, an incredible achievement. The hanging gardens, which you could probably see from his royal palace. See all the greenery and everything that was there. And he starts to give himself credit. He's in awe of himself. He's in awe of all that he's made and starts to be fixated on himself again. And while those words were in his mouth, the text says that a voice called down from heaven, saying that the dream that had been told to him a year before was going to come to pass. Everything that had been told would come to pass. And so what happened? Well, in verse 33, it says, He was driven away from people. He ate grass like an ox. His body was drenched with the dew of heaven until his hair grew like the feathers of an eagle and his nails like the claws of a bird. Now, what exactly happened here? There's a lot of different understandings. If you have a study Bible, it might give a few different possibilities of what happened to Nebuchadnezzar turning into an animal. Did he think he was an animal? Did he become an animal? What happened? Well, there's, there's all sorts of interpretations out there. The most common is something called lycanthropy, which is basically a delusional state that somebody enters into where they think they are some sort of beast. And so they have some of their human capacities, but they're in a delusional state where they also think they're a beast. That's the most common understanding of what happened here to Nebuchadnezzar. But my, my problem with trying to come up with this human understanding is that the text does not give us that answer. It leaves us open-ended. It doesn't tell us exactly what happened to Nebuchadnezzar. What it does highlight is that this was God's judgment on the king's life. And so I think instead of focusing on what happened, we are called to and invited to by the story to focus on why it happened. Why did this happen to Nebuchadnezzar? Because his life was all about himself. And God had, for his entire king, kingship of reign, had tried to get his attention, to turn him away from himself. Daniel 2, the first dream. Daniel 3, God protecting Nebuchadnezzar, uh, God protecting uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fire. Daniel 4, another dream. And Daniel invites him to repent. All of this time, he's been trying to get Nebuchadnezzar's attention, to get his eyes turned away from himself. So why, why did God do this? Well, I like what one Bible scholar said. He said this about what happened to Nebuchadnezzar. A man who thinks he is like a god must become a beast to learn that he is only a human being. That is why 
God did this to Nebuchadnezzar, to turn him away from himself. And in the story, I think the best way that you can kind of understand what has taken place is by focusing on what is King Nebuchadnezzar looking at? What are his eyes fixated on? Early in the story, he's looking after all that he's done, and he's thinking about himself and how great it is of all that he's accomplished. And he is the center of his own universe at that point of the story. But notice what happens in verse 34. Verse 34, again, Nebuchadnezzar's writing that part of the story himself, and he says, His eyes looked to heaven. His eyes looked to heaven. He turned away from himself to look to the Lord, and that made all the difference. With his eyes raised toward heaven, he could move away from his self centered ways to recognize his need for the Lord and invite the Lord in to move in his life. He took a path downward by looking upward. Andrew Murray uh, wrote a great book on humility, and he describes, I think, what Nebuchadnezzar is doing quite well. He says, here is a path to the higher life, down, lower down. Just as water always seeks and fills the lowest place, so the moment God finds men abased and empty, his glory and power flow in to exalt and to bless. And so we see this with Nebuchadnezzar, where his eyes are fixated on. They begin by himself, they move toward looking to the Lord. And I think it teaches us this lesson that what you fixate on, you amplify. Or maybe another way that we could say it is what has your attention controls your actions. At the beginning of the story, Nebuchadnezzar is all focused on himself. And so his life is just filled with him. And anything that kind of goes against that is immediately rejected. Most of the people that go against him or don't provide for him, he kills. He just gets rid of them because he has this overly inflated view of himself. And when you have a life focused on yourself, it's either overly inflated or overly deflated. Nebuchadnezzar is always focused on himself. And so it leads to this kind of distortion of how he sees himself. His fixation on himself amplified himself in his own life. And when I think about this, I think about a a recent event in my my own life. My daughter, Addie, is six years old, and she was playing in our backyard two weeks ago and fell awkwardly off of a hammock and broke her collarbone. And she's been a trooper and has had such a great attitude about the whole thing. I'm so proud of her, and she's getting better, thankfully, and uh, she's still, if you see her today, she's probably wearing a sling because she has to wear it for another week. Uh, but uh, I, what I would noticed about my daughter is for the first few days, you couldn't really touch her. She was very uh, nervous about anything that would move her arm. So she would hold it right here, no moving it, don't touch the shoulder, don't try and change her clothes. She wore the same clothes for like two days straight because she didn't want anything messing with her shoulder because it hurt. The pain caused her to focus on making sure she was really careful. Well, fast forward to this last week. I think it was Wednesday night. I see her barreling down the hallway toward the living room, full speed. And I just look at her. I'm like, Addie, what are you doing? Oh, sorry, Dad. I forgot I had a broken bone. The pain was gone. And the pain helped her fixate on making sure that she was really careful. And once the pain was gone, it was just kind of like, well, let anything go. What we fixate on controls 
our actions. And that's what we see happening with Nebuchadnezzar. God was trying to get Nebuchadnezzar's attention, but Nebuchadnezzar's attention was on himself. And so that's what he was focused on in his life. And eventually, he lifts his eyes toward the Lord and can then begin to adjust his life by fixating on something else. God invited him to allow God to move in a mighty way. And the the dream in Daniel 4 is a descent into a a God-given mental collapse, which ultimately becomes part of Nebuchadnezzar's testimony. That is Daniel 4. Daniel 4 is Nebuchadnezzar's testimony. And the the whole story here hinges, I think, he highlights it at the very last verse, verse 37, his willingness to humble himself, to look beyond himself to the Lord. He says of God, those who walk in pride, he is able to humble, Daniel 4, 37. I think that's really the testimony of Nebuchadnezzar's life. A prideful man who turned to the Lord and allowed God to humble him. And then becomes an agent for the Lord, as he says in those last few verses. And so I shared at the beginning, I have this fascination with the subject of humility, even as it's highlighted here by Nebuchadnezzar. A fascination with humility, in part because if I said to you, hey, I'm a really humble person you would say, that sounds like a really prideful thing to say. You cannot know that you are humble and be humble, is I think often how we understand humility. And I think there's probably some truth to that. So what is humility? Well, humility is a virtue. It is a moral character trait. I think of it like Galatians 5, what Paul says about the fruit of the Spirit. Those are, those are virtues of allowing God to be at work in you. Love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, kindness, gentleness, self-control. I probably missed one in there. But those are the fruits of the Spirit. And that's not an exhaustive list that Paul gives. Those are attributes of what it means to allow God to be at work within you. And so God is the one who produces the fruit of the Spirit. God is the one who allows for these virtues to grow in somebody's life. But my fascination is all of those attributes, we would say, are easily identifiable in ourselves and others, but not humility. If I look at myself and I say, yeah, I'm a really humble person, then that is more than likely pride spilling out within me. And so how do you develop humility if you can't recognize it in you? If you recognize it in you, that's more than likely pride that's speaking within yourself. How do you grow in humility if you can't know that you have it? That's kind of the question. That's my fascination with humility. That's the tension I've had for most of my adult life of wanting to grow in humility and yet not really knowing how. And so inspired by Nebuchadnezzar, who turned from his prideful ways to humble himself. That's how I want to end our time, by just looking at what humility is not, what humility is, our example for humility, and then how we can develop humility in our own lives as well. And so let's start with this. What is humility not? Well, there's some things on the outside that we can kind of show in the way that we live that can seemingly look like humility, but actually aren't. And the first of these is what I would call self-loathing. Self-loathing. And I think about the great quote by C.S. Lewis on humility. Humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself 
less. And that's kind of what I'm getting at here when I say self-loathing is not humility. What often looks like humility is actually insecurity on our parts. You don't think you're good enough. You don't understand why God could value you or care for you. And so you kind of live into that with your life. And so what actually comes across to many people as you, a humble person, is actually false humility. How could it be false? Well, you're still focused on yourself. Self-loathing is taking uh, an overly deflated view of yourself. Pride is an overly inflated view of yourself. And so it's humility distorted and broken, where we think our opinion of ourselves is more important than God's opinion of ourselves, which says we're valued and we're created and we're loved and cared for. And so the person with, that's struggling with insecurity or self-loathing, they don't really like themselves, is not necessarily a humble person because they're still focused on themselves. The second uh, thing that humility is not is passivity. Passivity, again, often looks like humility on the outside and the way somebody conducts their life. But inside, they have an inability to try and to move forward and to push Forward. Pride tries to do it all. Passivity does nothing. They just kind of sit there. And I think about an interaction I had with uh, somebody I was on a worship team with many years ago. And I would invite them to lead a song. And they'd say, ah, oh, you know, I don't really want to lead a song. And I'm thinking, well, you're a really great singer. And people love singing along with you. Like, this was a very talented person. God had obviously given them a gift. And so I was just kind of befuddled, like, why aren't they willing to kind of step out and to lead songs and to sing out and to be heard? And what I told them is that you need to make sure that you don't deprive other people of God's gift in you. They had this sort of passivity and insecurity that they weren't sure if they should use their gift in a way that other people could see it. That would be too prideful, would show off too much. But at the same time, what they were doing is depriving other people of the gift that God had given them. And I wonder if that's true of many of us, that we're not willing to step forward, to make an effort because, oh, we're just like, we don't want to come across as too arrogant or prideful. And I think about what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15. He says, I worked harder than all of them. He was moving forward, yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. And that's, I think, kind of a key to what humility is. He recognizes the importance of pushing forward and to using what God has given him, but he doesn't give himself credit. He says it's God at work within him. So those are two things of what humility is not. Now, what what is humility? Well, I think there's three parts, and we'll kind of piece together the three parts to come up with kind of a working definition for ourselves. The first part is dependence on God. Back in March, as we were studying the book of Luke, we looked at Luke 18, when Jesus tells the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. They go into the temple to pray, and the Pharisee enters into prayer by thanking God for all of his accomplishments, and that he's made, he's made sure to make him not like those other people who are obviously sinful and need God's help. He's, he's good. Thank you, Lord. And the tax collector just has a very short and simple prayer. God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Just a very short and simple prayer. Now, what does Jesus say about these two men? Well, to the shock of Jesus' audience, he says it's the obviously sinful 
tax collector who walks away justified. And it is the Pharisee who God does not listen to, the obviously righteous person. And what does Jesus say about this at the very end of the passage, Luke 18, 14? He says, for all those who humble themselves, all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. In the parable, to be humble is to be aware of your own sin, your unworthiness before the Lord, and to cast yourself upon the Lord, needing his mercy and his work in your life. It is a dependence on God. I think of it like uh, one of the Beatitudes. The poor in spirit, they will be given the kingdom of heaven. That's something Jesus says. We can be broken people and loved at the same time. That, that I think, highlights our dependence on the Lord. So dependence on God. And then second, this humble person recognizes God's work in ourselves and others. And I think the, the phrasing there is really important. It's not just recognizing God's gift in other people. It's okay to recognize God's at work in your life. But the first part of the statement is the foundation, recognizing whose work? Not Nebuchadnezzar's, not yours, not mine. God's work. Recognizing God's work in your life and in others. It's not that humility means, humility does not mean that you don't matter. It means that you don't get the credit. The good things, the God-given gifts that you have, that you get to use to bless others, are to God's credit. And I think this is exactly what we see happen toward the end of the story in Daniel 4 with Nebuchadnezzar as he turns away from himself toward the Lord. He's recognizing that it's God's work that has been at work this whole time, and he's finally submitting to it. So recognizing God's work in ourselves and others. And then lastly, a humble person participates in God's work by lifting the needs of others over our own. In our society, there's kind of, I would say, an obsession with pride in its various forms. Bravado, condescension toward those that you disagree with. There's an obsession with power and position and moving up. Those are kind of the things that are amplified in our society. And so there's very little participation in lifting up the needs of others when the focus is all on pride-based accolades. That's what we're all focused on. And the uh, ancient church church father, St. Augustine, recognized this problem. He was a man of stature and nobility who ultimately became a priest in the church and stepped down and moved away from his place of power to serve God's church. And he had a young priest write him later on in his ministry, asking him how he could prepare to become a priest just like him. And Augustine said this, the first part is humility. The second part is humility. And the third part is humility. To be humble in a biblical sense is to disregard our need for power and position, to be built up ourselves, to instead live a life of service for others. Remember what we talked about last week? If God is always giving, if the pie is always getting bigger, then we can be the ones who give because there's always going to be more. God will always continue to provide. And so with these three parts 
of humility, let's put them together and come up with a working definition. This isn't in your notes. It's only on the screen, but you're welcome to write it. Humility is dependence on God, part one, with a recognition of his work in ourselves and others, part two, while participating in his work by lifting the needs of others over our own, part three. That is, to me, what humility is. Now, you might come up with a definition that's a little bit differently that works for you, but as I've thought about humility, that's, I think, what we see through Nebuchadnezzar, what we see through God's word. But this isn't the end of the story. See, virtues are great to talk about, but they're difficult to live, especially so with humility, right? Because if you think you're humble, that means you're not. It's a very difficult thing to live a humble life, and yet we must pursue living humbly. We don't just talk about great things. We must live them. So what does it look like to live humility? I just have three basic ideas. These are not in the notes. Write whatever you want. If this is helpful, grab onto it. If you're like, that doesn't work for me, then reject it and move on. No problem. The first one is get used to saying, I'm sorry. In a relational sense, we would call this an apology. In a biblical sense, we would call this confession. But it's recognizing that we screw up. I, as a parent, have gotten quite used to this part of humility. I have to apologize to my kids probably every day for things that I haven't done well enough, for raising my voice when they're raising their voice at me. Because I think i got to be the loudest one in the room. There's all sorts of circumstances when I fall short. Confession of the bad in us is the first step to embracing something good in us. We have to acknowledge that we are broken in order to be healed. That is really the biblical story. Before we can be a community of saints, we must first be a community of sinners. And invite God to work. And so confession, apologize, say, I'm sorry. The second thing of what does it look like to practice humility in your life? Share encouragement. Share encouragement. And the, the basic idea I have here is that nobody on the planet receives too much encouragement. Nobody does. I think actually most of us are kind of starved for encouragement. We don't get enough Encouragement, And so we kind of think like, oh, man, I don't know if I'm doing what God wants me to be doing. But if we had some encouragement to kind of point us in that way. And so as it relates to what humility is not and what humility is that we talked about earlier, you cannot be passive and self-focused and share encouragement to other people. Not honestly, at least. To honestly share encouragement with other people, you have to notice them. And you have to see how you recognize God's at work in their life. And then you have to intentionally go to them and share those words of encouragement. And so I think sharing encouragement is a huge part of living a humble life because it takes you outside of yourself and causes you to think about other people. And then it recognizes that God is at work in them in some very specific ways. And so share encouragement. Nobody receives enough encouragement. And then lastly, do something without recognition. Do something without recognition. I think in our age of social media, this is especially important. Jesus says, as it relates to prayer, to go into your room and close the door and pray privately 
to your Father in heaven. Don't be like those religious people who go out onto the street corners and pray and try and make it look really good on the outside. Go into your room privately. Now, he's talking about prayer, but I think you can extrapolate the same principle into the way that we live our lives. Everything that you do in your life right now can be shared publicly through the various venues that are available to us today. Everything can be public. And yet, I think often the best things in life are the things that you don't get accolades for, that don't show up on your resume. Those are the things that matter most in life. And so, I think if I could boil all of this down, I think it's very simple to say humility is unattainable. It just is. Because if you think you're humble, that means you're not. That's kind of pride welling up in you. Humility is unattainable. But by surrendering our lives to the Lord, like Nebuchadnezzar did, we can grow in humility. We can step down to serve others and to recognize the Lord, to step into humility, not on our own, but through the Lord's help. Paul has a a beautiful uh, paragraph or two that he writes in Philippians 2 that provides an answer to humility or an example to humility. It shows us that we on our own can't embrace humility, but through God's work we can. And I think this is a great way to lead into our response time of communion. This is what Paul writes about Jesus and what Jesus did that shows us humility. He says this in verses 3 through 11 of Philippians 2. In humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of of others in your relationships with one another have the same mindset as Christ Jesus who being in very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage rather he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death even death on a cross Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. As I read that, I just think about the, the contrast between what Paul says about Jesus and what we know about Nebuchadnezzar all throughout the book of Daniel until the very end a life of pride, of self-focus, about ascending to greatness through power and achievements. And then we have Jesus who ascends his throne by condescending to our place. He is our example of what humility looks like. Pride disorders our minds and causes us to think that all we need is ourselves. And so we turn away from the Lord and we reject other people. But Paul encourages us, to reflect on what Christ has done so that we can take on the mind of Christ, to be humble people. And when we see God's character through Jesus shining in humility as he steps down and makes himself nothing, it humbles us and it leads us to praise him. And so like Nebuchadnezzar and like Jesus, I think we are called to embrace being humble people, to step into greatness by condescending to serve others and to embrace the Lord.
cross as you wait for the crown. Tell the world of the treasure you found. That last line is a statement about humility. Bury your cross as you wait for the crown. To be lifted up, to be exalted in God's kingdom is to humble yourself before him. As I was studying this week, I came across a story about Benjamin Franklin, who was probably a deist, probably not a Christian, but the story relates. Uh, He, when he was like 26 years old, decided he didn't like the, the way his life was going. He wanted to be more virtuous. He wanted his life to have more character to it. And uh, so he set out to develop a plan around 12 virtues. And he gave it to a friend of his who happened to be a Quaker, a Christian believer. And uh, that friend said to him, hey, like, these are all great. Do you want to grow in kindness and love and and joy and patience? Those are all great things, temperance, patience. And uh, he said, but there's one thing missing. And I think it's indicative of our society. One thing missing. We got a lot of virtues that we live for. But what did Ben Franklin not have in there that he included later? He had 13 virtues. Humility. Humility. I think it's overlooked. It's definitely devalued in our society. And yet God's kingdom amplifies it. That is how you step up is by stepping down. And so our benediction for this morning comes from 1 Timothy 1, or is inspired by 1 Timothy 1, which says, To the king of the ages, and I would say this king who ascended his throne by condescending to our place, immortal, invisible, to the only God, be glory and honor forever and ever. Amen. God bless you. Have a great week. If we don't see you this afternoon, otherwise, see you at the trunk or treat, and uh, I'll be looking for Ice Ice Baby. Have a good week.